Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. I'm Ed Bacon, the Interim Rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in downtown Atlanta, and I have some amazing conversational partners with me this morning. Those of you who were with us last week uh, heard about the amazing turnaround of Chris Buckley at the instrumentation of his wife doing a, one of the strangest interventions I've ever heard about. We'll get into that in, in a few minutes. It was so powerful though, Chris did a 180 on his addiction to hatred after and while he was the second in command of the KKK in the United States of America. And these two friends of ours, I'm gonna introduce them first, had told, had connected me with Chris after I saw Chris on the Lester Holt NBC show and put Chris's story, highly abbreviated, into my Sunday sermon the next Sunday. And then a member of the parish said, would you like to know who da, 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 da. So one thing led to another. We don't need to get into that. What we need to get into is the heart of the story, which is one of the most miraculous stories of redemption I have ever heard about. So let's meet the documentarians who were the connectors between my Sunday sermon and Chris and Melissa Buckley. So I want you to meet first Den Blankenship, and also I want you to meet Aaron. Where's Aaron? Is Aaron here? Yeah. Oh, there you are, Aaron Bernhardt. So these are two brilliant uh, Atlanta residents who are documentarians of a new documentary coming out next, this coming fall, called Clarkston. And they tell part of the story that we're going to unpack uh, today for you. So Erin, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us two weeks in a row. Oh, it's really thrilling for me. And Den, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us back. Glad you're not sick of us yet. <laughs> oh, no way, no way I could be. <laughs> now, those who know how much I am in love with the power of interfaith and interspirituality will easily understand that I'm thrilled that we have someone who grew up Jewish, that's Aaron, and now I'm going to introduce to you Dr. Haval Kelly, who's Muslim. Hello, Dr. Kelly, welcome. Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me here. It's wonderful to have you here. And everybody, the reason Haval, Haval, do you, um, Dr. Kelly, do you mind if I call you Haval? That's fine, of course, of course, unless you're my patient. <laughs> okay. Haval actually has a really cool meaning in Kurdish. Oh, really? What is the meaning of Haval? It means friend in Kurdish. Oh, guess what? My name means friend too. I love that. So okay. anyway, welcome Haval. Salam alaikum. Um, Haval is in the middle of his Ramadan fast. And the reason, uh, one of the reasons he's here is because Chris Buckley, our person from last week, was a rabid, hate-filled Islamophobe and hated absolutely everything Muslim. And Haval was the embodiment of his turning around. We're going to get into that story in just a minute. And before we get into any of the stories, now I want you to meet 
uh, Arno Michaelis. Welcome, Arno. Thank you, Pastor Bob. It's my pleasure. It's really, really great to have you. But before uh, we go back to tell the story, I want everybody to uh, understand that uh, Arno was the person who came in to the Buckley's life in an amazingly um, solidarity and compassion-filled way for more than a year and actually uh, flew Chris to Los Angeles for an amazing transformational journey. And we'll unpack that as well. So, uh, and Arno is Buddhist. So we got Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, and I'm everything um, all put together. So I'm really, really glad you're here. So here's the story that I wanted uh, to dip into. So last week, those who watched it, and I want everybody please to watch it uh, if you haven't already, and we'll put the link uh, in all of the chats that are associated with this. We're on YouTube, Facebook, and are also on our website. So Melissa Buckley, the wife of Chris, was absolutely beside herself, not knowing what in the world to do because her husband was consumed with hatred. He had made a KKK robe for his little boy and taught him to say white power. He hated absolutely everything Muslim because he held a um, buddy of his in the war in Afghanistan in 2008 while he died. And of course he had been killed by Muslim and he had been told to villainize absolutely everyone who is Muslim. She got accosted at Walmart by African-American women. She had African-American relatives. She does have African-American relatives. And these women accosted her because her husband had such a high profile public stance of white nationalism, hatred toward black people. And she came home in desperation and Googled, what do you do when someone you love is consumed by hatred? And miracle of all miracles, the word came up, the name came up, Arna Michaelis. And out of this amazing, risk-filled, courage, faith-based, love-based act, she got in touch with Arno and Arno came and over a period of a year was a companion with these people as Chris did a 180. So we're gonna get into the power of what was the transformation. Uh, that's just a really amazing story. Uh, but before we get there, Arno, can you just recall getting a, an email out of the blue from this wife of a man who was addicted to hatred, asking for help. Will you tell that story, Arno? Yeah, it's not uh, it's not uncommon for loved ones of of people stricken with hateful ideologies to uh, really obviously want them to find a better place in their life. Um, I was very grateful that Melissa did find her way to me 
And what she basically said is that her husband was an Imperial Nighthawk in the Ku Klux Klan, meaning he was a bodyguard to the Imperial Wizard, who is a, a national leader of a clan group. And uh, she described the situation you had talked about where uh, she ran into some conflict at Walmart with some Afro-American women who were aware of, of Chris's uh, involvement in the Klan. And she really just said she was afraid for her family, first and foremost, afraid for her children. They have a young son uh, named CJ and a daughter named Myra, who were, I believe, about four and one at the time. And uh, Melissa was concerned for their safety and she was concerned for Chris's safety. Uh, she was worried that uh, what he was getting mixed up in, what sort of acts he was perpetrating. And she was also worried that that hatred was gonna come reflecting back at her family. So she asked me for help and I was fortunate to uh, have the resources to uh, fly down to Atlanta and then up to Northern Georgia where Chris is and spend some time with uh, him and his family. And, and this process did take about a year. And uh, I'm happy to say today that as you guys know from talking with Chris last week, he's, he's really made an incredible journey. And it, it shouldn't be um, overlooked that, that on top of overcoming his addiction to hate, he also overcame uh, methamphetamine addiction. So he, he was literally had two uh, very toxic addictions in his life. And I, I'm incredibly proud of him for uh, being in the process of recovery from both of those. So um, you flew down from Canada or Milwaukee? Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So you're based there. Correct. And you came and I want to note that in addition to being his companion and not preaching to him as much as taking him to expose him to real human beings mm. who would embody the antithesis of what he was saying, then it was just stunning. It was transformative. So, can you talk about Haval and the role that bringing Haval and Chris together played? Yeah, and my role in this is, is really just, it was getting Chris to the point where he was uh, ready to talk to Haval. And it, it, it took a, it was, it was quite a journey to, to get him to that point. I, I will mention I have another dear Muslim friend named uh, Mubin Sheikh, who is in Toronto, Canada. Mubin is a former jihadi who uh, became a counterterrorism operative and actually went undercover for a year to foil a terror plot in Toronto that would have rivaled 9-11. So uh, Mubin is like a real life superhero. And I, and I love Mubin and I love Haval. And, and I, I know Haval's been through enough having uh, come here as a refugee. I didn't want to make Haval the first uh, Muslim person that Chris talked to. <laughs> so uh, Mubin took that role via Skype. And uh, it, it was a, a pretty amazing exchange. Um, there, there were expletives involved that I, I won't repeat here <laughs> for the sake of your, your congregation. But uh, it, it, when they got done with it, um, Chris was uh, Chris wanted to go fishing with Mubin, 
and it was uh, it was a big deal. And, and I think it was after that that I, I felt that Chris was many, ready to meet of all. I, I wanted to introduce Chris to uh, a Muslim friend of mine in, in his area uh, who he could connect with and have an ongoing relationship with. But I also wanted uh, Chris to really experience that not only are, are Muslim people um, not a threat, but that Muslim people are some of the most amazing human beings to walk the face of this earth. And I, I can't describe Dr. Haval Kelly in, in any other way. Uh, just the, the impact that Haval has had on the world around him, uh, especially since coming to the States and uh, doing all the work he has to, to put himself in a position to help other people uh, work through struggle is just unbelievable. And, and uh, I, I will pat myself on the back, uh, mission accomplished. Haval's friendship really uh, drove home to Chris that uh, we, we should not only tolerate Muslim people in our country, but welcome them. And, and that uh, some of the, the greatest Americans in the United States are, are, are Muslim. Got it. So everybody who's listening, we still haven't gotten to the secret sauce. We're going to get there, but we're still setting the stage. And I want to go to Dr. Kelly. Haval Kelly is a cardiologist. His wife is a cardiologist, uh, I understand. And you all grew up in Syria and you immigrated in 2012. Is that correct, Haval? Yes, we, we know. We migrated, we left Syria in 1996 and got here in 2001. Yeah, I've got it. So will you tell us the story about how you and Arno met and then wh what went through your mind when Arno said, I want you and Chris Buckley to meet? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I get too much credit for the story, but I think the credit goes all back to Arno because if it wasn't for him and his work, and his connection i don't think any of this would have happened so okay you humble man i get it and we're gonna get there but well we're... you know i always say that behind every great story there's an american one so <laughs> uh, i think honor gets full I, we were at the carter center for uh, a conference on hate and there were a presentation from all around the world speaking um i became frustrated during the conference that everyone kept talking about the issue and the problem. But me as a physician, you know, I could talk to my patient all the time about the problem and issue, but at one point I got to start working on solutions and meaningful. And the conference kept talking about the issue and the discrimination against Muslim and the hate, but none of it was, every time you brought a solution, we're like, oh, this is too small. Every, every time you talked about a discussion where the government needs to change. So either it was the solution too big or too small. So me and him started talking. I'm like, who's this guy in a Hawaiian shirt with flip-flops sitting in a conference with all these professional academic? I'm like, it must be something. You so we start talking, and he told me he's going to go meet this guy in Somerville, Georgia, who was a former KKK, what is a current KKK member. He's like, you want to come with me? I was like, well, I have him on call. I have to go back to the hospital, and maybe later on. And I didn't think much of it. And then down the road, he pretty much connected us online. Uh, and like, you know, people say social media is a way of spreading hate, but I think social media could be a way to spreading relationships. So he actually connected me with this guy on Facebook. Uh, you know, the way I approach it, Chris, is different from a lot of people. You know, yes, at uh, that time I was finishing my cardiology fellowship. I knew I came from a very strong academic background. 
Chris is someone who just, you know, former drug addict, you know, formerly like, you know, current KK member. I wasn't approaching like, here's a doctor. I'm smarter. I have better knowledge. I was like, I took off my white coat and maybe approach him just like a human being. And actually I give him my cell phone number. I tell him, hey, I'm driving home after my call. You're welcome to talk to me. So we start talking to each other. You know, I told him about my work in the VA hospital, how I work in the emergency room and, and I enjoy working with a veteran, trying to find common grounds. And then since then we start talking more on the phone and discussing an issue, realizing we have more in common uh, besides, you know, the negative stuff. So we were talking about our love for a country. I mean, he obviously someone who went to fought in Iraq to protect his country, you know, and you know, I love America and I'm a new American. So we shared our passion for the country in a different time span. And that's how it started. It was just a simple conversation. It was no like me go reading psychiatric books about how to change people's mind or the, the five tips, how to influence someone's mind or, you know, Carnegie's book about how people love you more. It was just a simple human interaction at that time. Thank you. So Arno, let me, let's now get down to the heart of the matter. <clears throat> I asked Chris Buckley, what did Arno say or embody to you that really had the power to turn you around? And he said the following. It was a program of unconditional compassion. And at that point, my mind just blew. So Arno, can you unpack what Chris Buckley is talking about when he calls your way of life a program of unconditional compassion? Yeah, I, I'm happy to. And, and I, I'm happy to because I, I I think compassion is so underrated, along with kindness and along with forgiveness. I, I, I believe that those three noble human qualities are really the greatest weapons that we have in the fight against hate and in the fight against uh, violence, in the fight for peace and, and for fellowship. And I, I've learned this firsthand as, as I am also a former white nationalist. I was involved in white nationalist hate groups from 1987 till 1994. And it was the compassion shown to me by people I claim to hate. You can see a pattern here <laughs> that, that, that changed the course of my life. It was people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, black and Latino co-workers who refused to capitulate to my hostility and reflect wow. it, which is always what I was trying to provoke. And instead, they put themselves in a position of power but with compassion and said, I'm not going to play by your rules, Arno. I'm going to dictate the rules of our engagement to you. And, and working with Chris and, and other military veterans, I've learned to think tactically. And, and tactically, if you want to accomplish an objective, uh, it's not a good idea to play by the rules that your opponent sets. It's a better idea to dictate the rules of that engagement. And that's what happens with me. And uh, because of the kindness of these very brave people, I was able to leave white national state groups in 1994 Went a long journey of my own, um, led me to 2010 when I went public with my story 
And uh, that's what eventually led me to meet Chris. And, and I will say in all uh, candor, when I met Chris, I, it was all I could do to not punch him in the mouth. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was, he was incredibly hostile. He was incredibly offensive. He was cussing like a sailor, which doesn't bother me. Everybody who knows me knows I, I cuss like a sailor myself. I actually find cussing kind of endearing, but, um, <laughs> what, what bothered me with Chris is that he was using racial slurs like every other word. And that bothered me on a couple of levels. For one, he was basically rubbing my nose in my past and showing me in a real visceral way, like exactly who I was 30 years ago. And that was very unpleasant. It, it made me angry, it made me hostile. But most of all, uh, when I hear language like that, that's language that is, has been systematically designed to dehumanize people. And today there are people in my life uh, like of all, I can rattle down a very long list of, of people who uh, have more melanin in their skin than I do. And, and so when I hear racial slurs used, it, it's, it's language that dehumanizes people that I love and that I cherish. And that makes me as angry as anyone else, you know, as someone would feel if they said something about their mother or something like that. Yep. Yep. So as angry as I was, um, I, I took a breath. And I, I, as a Buddhist, meditation is my daily prayer. I, I do it on a regular basis. I practice sitting and, and working on my own sense of inner peace. And in that span of taking a breath and feeling the breath cross my nostrils into my body, I was able to disconnect my being from Chris's hostility and then reconnect to him through my compassion and remind myself that the, the reason he's acting this way is that is because he's suffering. And when, when I can get that through my head, now I can overcome my anger against him. And rather than punch him in the mouth, I, I just said, you know, I, I get all that, Chris, I've been where you are. I've, I've spent seven years of my life there. And I've said everything you have to say uh, better than you'll ever say it actually. And you haven't been where I am now where I walk the world and I see family everywhere I look amongst human beings. I go places where you're terrified to go and, and I'm delighted to do so. And I do so with joy and with gratitude and I'm welcomed as a, a family member by people that, that you are committed to hate. And, and that kind of led us to our, our trip to Los Angeles. Okay. Now we're going to, we're going to pause sure. because you said some things that made me take deep breaths. Okay. So I want to go back to some things and then I want to talk about the trip to Los Angeles. Sure. Because that's huge. Now, before we go there, I, I really do want to go back to your Buddhist practice. Sure. And just repeat that because I know that the people who are watching are going to want that repeated. But before I go there, I see that Aaron Bernhardt has brought in another guest. And let's just say hello. Aaron, hi. Who is this, Aaron? This is Boyd, and he is being raised to be a good ally. <laughs> One of his best buddies is, is Haval's son, who's a few months older than he is. So they're, they're the next generation of activists. New world. So, Dan, how are you doing with this story so far? I mean... I always love hearing it afresh, you know, um, 
we got to like witness so much of this. So it's cool to like hear y'all talk about it, you know? Yeah. So all of this is documented. Although we weren't there when you're in Christmas. But. Yeah. What'd you say, Ed? All of this is documented in the doc in the movie, in the film. Yeah, I mean, I think Din mentioned this last time, but just to reiterate, when Haval, like Arno connected Haval and Chris and they kind of had this online friendship forming. And then when Haval went to actually meet Chris, it was Haval, who's Muslim, me, Jewish, and our director of photography filming it, who's black, half black, half white. Um, and so you had a Muslim, a Jew, and a, you know, African-American color driving to, you know, a small town in rural North Georgia to meet a guy who was like supposedly leaving the KKK. And my husband was like, this sounds like a trap. <laughs> so I'm just really glad at how it worked out. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you all for chiming in. Arno, please, let's go back. So I simply would love for you to repeat, my friend, the fact that Chris came at you with so much offensive language. And then will you please talk about your breathing practice and what you did in terms of separating and disconnecting from his hatred, his energy. Just repeat that, my friend, please. Well, it's interesting because when I adopted my meditation practice, it's when I first realized the possibility of self-forgiveness for all the harm that I had done. And, and before I, I had sat to meditate and, and learn from a 2,500-year-old oral tradition how to be gentle and forgiving and compassionate and kind to myself, I had resigned myself to never forgiving myself for the, the people I had hurt. And when I sat to focus on my breath for the first time, and I'm hungry and a thought of a double cheeseburger with the works like intrudes on my attempted focus on my breath, I was able to dismiss that thought and return my focus to my breath and to do so without judgment and with forgiveness and with gentleness. And when I, I that meditation se session ended 10 minutes later, I realized that if I could work with this thought of a double cheeseburger with the works, I could work with my grudge against myself. They're Got both it. the same raw material. They're both made from my thought, from my mind. And that when you practice doing that every day, even for 10 minutes a day, you can reach a point where I was with Chris, where I, I'm in a very tense, hostile situation. And I got a guy in my face who's screaming at me, saying very hateful things, very hurtful things. And, and just feeling my breath for a moment enabled me to recenter and, and go back to my heart and my mind and, and understand the, the dynamics of that interaction and what, it, what I needed to do in order to prevail. And so compassion put me in a position of power. I, there, there's a lot of people nowadays who are, are rightfully outraged about racism, about hate. I don't blame them one bit, but it, it breaks my heart when people in that position uh, shun compassion and shun forgiveness, saying that it's, you know, some kumbaya, bongo, beating stuff around a campfire that's not going to accomplish the objective. I, I, that, that's patently false, yep. because had I 
I'm a big dude. I'm like 6'3", 225 pounds. I'm, I'm much physically larger than Chris. If I was so inclined to jump on him and physically hurt him, I, I would have done so. But had I done that, I don't know that Chris ever would have left the Ku Klux Klan. Yep. Back in my white nationalist days, I was extremely violent. And I got more fights than I can imagine or that I can count. And I, I got beat up as often as I beat up other people. Yeah. And in, in no situation did violence ever make me less hateful and violent. Yeah. In fact, even when I got beat up, it made me more violent because now yeah. I, it's like actually like pounding the hatred into me. So yeah. because I, I chose compassion in that moment, I was able to reach Chris and help him along that journey to who he is today, who is the, the man that you spoke to last week. That wouldn't have happened without compassion. Yep. And the power of compassion and breathing that compassion you said it disconnected did you say it disconnected my being from his body and hatred is that what you said i i said it, it disconnected my being from his hostility from his hostility yeah and, and that's that's what's happening if, if we're in our interaction with someone and they're hostile towards us and we're hostile back we are literally puppets on a string. We're yeah. not in control of, of our response and our thoughts and our actions. This yep. other person is controlling us in the same way you control a marionette. And rather than be controlled by a very traumatized, broken, hateful man, that, that breath and feeling it come into my nostrils enabled me to, to break that hold and yep. then to reestablish it in my favor according to my rules and, and those rules being a, the, the universal human value of compassion and forgiveness. Yeah. So we're going to get we're going to get to the trip to Los Angeles in a minute, Arno, I promise, because awesome. that is just as amazing. But Habal, <laughs> I'd like to go back to you. Um, I'm I, right after 9-11, I fasted for Ramadan for 10 years and know something about um practices um, of the Muslim year. And one of my dearest Muslim friends, I asked her once, she was teaching at my church, um, and I was asking what was the essence of her practice of Islam. And her response has stayed with me forever. She says, it is for me to attain God consciousness. Can you have all talk a little bit about what's going on inside you spiritually that is resonant, not the same necessarily by any means. I don't want to blur any distinctions, but is resonant with what Arno is talking about in terms of compassion. Can you talk a little bit about that, Haval? Yes, I mean that's a uh, you know that's a question to think deeply about it um, and. To reflect and i think just to you know go by what uh, arno is saying it's just compassionate things in every religion out there i don't think there's any religion that advocates for violence most religion have a common ground of just serving each other i mean he i don't i don't think islam is just focused on the prayer and then ramadan if you don't take say hello to your neighbor next door or don't worry about if your neighbor has any food Whatever, if you see someone, you're trying to help them. If you cannot do that and just focus on the logistical part, then you're missing the part of the religion. And I think that's what Islam is about. 
It's just a religion of of submission, and I think submission to God and and you know and, and living through those examples by serving your communities. I think that's really what what every religion advocates for. I mean, I always tell like you know Jesus did not you know spread Christianity by coming with a model saying if you follow these nine out of ten commandments you go to heaven. It wasn't like a statistical formula. It was more story of compassion, helping each other. And I yeah. think that's why the religion was spread through stories. And I think the stories of Arno and Chris and others really helps us to reflect on them and also replicate them in our daily life in every encounter we go through. And, and Dr. Kelly, remind us, when a Muslim begins a prayer and speaks of the prophet, they describe the prophet as? Uh, I'm trying to understand what exactly you mean, like as a prophet, as a... No, the, the prophet only... Muhammad. Yeah, Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, pray upon, peace upon him, so... And, a... and, and talks about his compassion, right? Exactly, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, like I'm, I'm missing... Well, we know when we always mention the prophet name, we have to always at the same time mention, you know, be but peace, say peace be upon him. And I think there's an essence behind that. Every time you mention a name, it reminds you of focusing on peace, focusing on compassion. But you're perfectly correct. The most merciful, the most compassionate, right? Yes. Yeah. And what what's the other what's the other thing you say you and Mama Amina say all the time? It's like Allah, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. What's oh, that? Oh yeah, like uh, thanks to God. Thanks I mean, God. I think. I mean, you know, the whole essence of, of Islam really is about reminding yourself. And that's what Ramadan purpose is, is reminding how blessed you have. I mean, you're fasting all day long, not eating and drinking. But you know, by the end of the day, you're blessed to have food. But how about the others who don't have that? And I think that's keep the essence of the whole religion is when doing the fasting. Yeah. So now we have to talk about the trip to Los Angeles to everybody. So this is one of the most amazing things, Arno, I have ever heard in my life, that you said to this guy who was verbalizing all of this bile, hatred, gross, offensive language, I'm going to put you on a plane and I'm going to take you to Los Angeles. Can you take it from there, Arno, please? Yeah, so it was, it was it's always very important to me to walk the walk, so to speak. And, and I, I do my best to do that in my day-to-day -day life. So when I advocate for diversity and I talk about what a blessing diversity is for humanity, I, I don't like just say that and then not operate in a diverse environment myself. I, I go out of my way to connect with and maintain relationships with people who don't look like me. And, and it's become beyond a habit, beyond a practice, it's just kind of my way now. And, and I, it's part of my joy. It's part of why I love life so much. And I wanted Chris to experience that as well. And what better place than Los Angeles? Uh, but another real important play, reason why Los Angeles was chosen for this trip is because of a really amazing organization called Homeboy Industries. And I understand you're uh, familiar with Father Greg Boyle, uh, Pastor Ed. Um, Father Greg is a Jesuit priest. He was assigned the poorest parish in, in East LA about 35 years ago. And in order to give one kid a job, he started a bakery in the back of the church. 
this ultimately became Homeboy Industries, which today has an annual, annual operating budget of around $15 million. And they raise over 10 million of that themselves through entrepreneurial activities of which the bakery is still a part. Uh, they have an amazing restaurant called Home Girl Cafe. They do screen printing, embroidery. They train people to do solar installation, uh, to fight wildfires. And, and all this is all in the process of helping people who have been uh, involved in, in gangs to turn their lives around. So Homeboy Industries, where I, I had the grace to visit a couple of times and I had met Father Greg and, and I have a dear friend named Hector Verdugo who is the Associate Executive Director there. Um, Homeboy Industries is like this hive of activity that is just swarming with all sorts of people from all different backgrounds who, who are helping each other and turning their lives around. It, it, a great example is there's two very notorious street gangs in the Bloods and the Crips, who I believe originated in, in, in Los Angeles. When you go to Homeboy Industries, you will see Bloods and Crips not only in the same room, but like literally break, baking bread together and, and like doing work together. And, and they do so with joy because while they, they may hate each other out in the streets, they may have even shot at each other, or killed each other's loved ones. When they are in Homeboy, that place is, is the embodiment of unconditional compassion. And I, when I took Chris there, I, he first sat with Hector and Hector and him uh, had a, a, a talk together. And I, I wasn't in the room. I, I just wanted Chris and Hector to have some time to chat. And Chris came out of there, this ball and mess. And, and uh, just was so touched by Hector's care for him, even though they had never met. And then we had a tour of the whole place and, and Chris honestly couldn't stop crying the entire tour. Um, now, all this is being filmed as, as part of a, an unscripted series that unfortunately never ran, but we have a film crew following us this whole time. And when it's, we get done and the director's like, okay, I think we got everything we, we need, let's start packing up. Right at this point, there was a young woman, a homegirl who worked at Homegirl Cafe, a Latina former gang member, who uh, said, hey, you know, are you guys making a TV show? And, and Homeboy's in Los Angeles, and, and God bless the Hollywood community, they support Homeboy a lot. And there's movie stars and camera crews in there all the time, so it's not that big of a deal, but she was just curious, and hey, what's the show about? And I said, oh, we're, it's a show where we help people get out of the Ku Klux Klan. And she goes, wow, that sounds crazy. I can't wait to watch the show. And I said, well, do you want to meet the guy who's, who's getting out of the clan? And she's like, yeah, I'd love to. And then I, the filmmaker and me, you'd be very proud of me, Aaron and Dan. Um, the filmmaker and me, the, the wheels are turning. And I, I noticed Chris was still mic. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Chris, come here and say hi to Angela. And then I, I signal the photographers. And I'm like, keep going, keep going. So I kind of excused myself. And I actually went around the corner and I watched all this on a monitor. And uh, Chris came up to Angela and she's like, oh, so, you know, you're in the Ku Klux Klan. And she's, she's curious and happy. She's not afraid of him one bit. And Chris goes, uh, he just starts crying again. He goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, and I just hope you can forgive me. And she's like, sorry for what? What are you sorry for? And he's like, I, I hated you. I hated you for no reason. I, 
to Chris, you know, I mean, all Latinos are Mexican. He goes, I hated all Mexicans. And, uh, and I, you know, I had no reason to do it. And I feel so bad. And she's like, she's like, do you know how badly I hated black people my whole life? You know how badly I hated the street gang from across the, the, the neighborhood? And, and now we're all here together. She's like, it, it don't matter where you're at. And you're here now. And that's all that matters. And, and he just breaks down and she was like, you look like you need a hug, buddy. And she gave him a hug and, and he's just spontaneously, Chris goes, I love you. <laughs> it was just a, one of the most amazing moments I've ever seen in my entire life. And it really embodied like that whole part of the journey. And then after we were walking out of Homeboy, though this is all prior to Chris talking to Mubin or Chris talking to Evolve. And, and I, I'll, I'll qualify this by saying, leading up to this, Chris and I would have conversations where Chris would say, hey, I'm, I'm cool with the Blacks and the Mexicans, but I'm never going to be cool with the Muslims, ever, yep. ever. And to the point where he pulled guns on me. To, it like threw me out of his house at gunpoint for yep. suggesting that he speak to a Muslim person. Yep. So all this leads up to Homeboy Visit. We're walking out of Homeboy, and, and I can see Chris, and he's just like destroyed in the best way like all of the hate and, and all of that has just been destroyed and you can tell he's he's just had this huge moment and then i just said uh, you know what's next don't you chris and he goes yeah i go well, what's next i gotta talk to your muslim buddy <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's how i got him to the point where he was ready to talk to a movie and and that's you know it's all history from there so I just want to note, I mean, I'm, I'm having to take deep breaths here, Arno, with everything you're saying. Um, I'm, I'm not sure any of this could have happened without your breathing compassion to him, no matter how much hatred he breathed toward you. Mm. And for any of us to receive unconditional compassion maybe the most potent healing medicine our soul can ever receive. And I, I seriously bow before you, my brother, um, for having that discipline. I mean, I have that discipline of breath centering prayer for an hour every morning, and I know how life-giving it is to me. And I'm just just grateful. Uh, it's like you are this living lighthouse, and Chris now is a living lighthouse in a tormented sea of polarization, divisiveness, and hatred. And I'm deeply, deeply grateful. Thank you, Pastor. That that means the world to me. But I, I just would have to say that had no one lit that light for me i i would have never been in a place to guide chris so it, it's really uh i i believe this is just the the best of of what human beings can do and what the best we can be and as heartbreaking as as hate and violence are they, they are also opportunities to practice this kind of compassion in the same way that um you know you can practice uh basketball by yourself with you know just bouncing a basketball yeah. but if you have a, a whole court to play on and you got people to play with 
Yeah. <laughs> now you can take that practice to a whole other level. And so while we, we certainly don't want to create hate and violence in the world, we don't want to, um, we want to lessen it by all means. We, we, we always can look at the, the strife in our society as opportunity to practice compassion. And, and if it wasn't for people doing that, for me, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it for Chris. Um, I'm going to come back to you in just a minute, but I, I need to come back to Haval Kelly. Um, Haval, I mean, Chris told us last week the depth of hatred he had toward all persons Muslim. And I just wanted to ask you, did you feel that? And did you feel a change over the course of your relationship or had, well, let me ask you that and not put words in your mouth, my friend, of all? I mean, you know, it's not a very glooming story that someone goes from a very hateful background of sudden he is like this, you know, the Dalai Lama, like, you know, that does, you see that in a movie and there's a, you know, the 90 minute Hollywood video. Yep. It really, there's, there's a life after change too. And I tell people like they, they, you know, he had to struggle to go through that. And sometimes it will come out, you know, like, especially during the election time and the Trump era, you know, like he will post things, he will forget that he's going through change. He forgets that, for example, that people are looking for inspiration in his words. And it takes time, you know, it took him time to get rid of a lot of those things from his past. But I think people need to remember, like, it's not like one day he meets a Muslim guy and now he's like, you know, like, a, you know, a, a changed person and he's all loving. Things from the past could come around, especially when moments of watching, you know, the news. And, you know, I mean, he's also like, as a veteran, he was dealing with a lot of like, you know, sometimes with PTSD and things that could reflect back on him and his experience. So we have to keep that in mind. It's just like dealing with my patient. I don't expect my patient to, like when I tell them they need to lose weight, if they lost some weight, it's great but they might bounce back and eat something bad, you know, and it's fine. You know, we could go back on track, you know, and that same thing I treat his change. So it's just going to take time until he get on the right track. And it might take years until he like fully recover from it too. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately um, we have to wrap this up. And I know that there are people who are watching who want to go deeper. So Arno, I, I, I do want to um, say how thrilling it was to find out that you and my friend Greg Boyle are also friends. He is one of the closest friends I have. And uh, when I lived in Los Angeles County for 21 years, uh, we were together a lot and he spoke in my church a great deal. And um, he uh, loves to, <laughs> well, he, he, he told me about Pema Chodron coming to visit homeboys once. And uh, she just wanted to hear about homeboys. And she said, um, I wanted to come by and see you because I, I have to go and see a lady called uh, Ms. Oprah Woodford. <laughs> that's, that's how amazing Pema Chodron is. And nevertheless, um, Greg loves to quote uh, Mother Teresa that said, who says, all the problems we have in the world are because we've forgotten that we're related to one another. Um, but he is he is a dear, compassionate person. And if anybody wants to know about him, Tattoos on the Heart and Barking to the Choir are two of his wonderful, wonderful books. But I also want to talk about your books, uh, just to mention them. 
your my life after hate is your memoir is that correct yeah that that's my my first book it's uh self-published and then uh, my latest book I, i've co-authored with uh brilliant man named Pardeep Singh Kalika, who lost his father in the August 5th, 2012 uh, Sikh Temple shooting. Yeah. And the name of that book is The Gift of Our Wounds. Is that correct? correct. Yeah. So Arno Michaelis, thank you for being who you are. And, th and yes, namaste. And thank you for being with us. Haval Kelly, um, I hope that you have the sweetest Ramadan, my friend. Yeah. Thank you so much and bless you and your practice. Uh, Dim Blankenship, Aaron Bernhardt, thank you so much for this documentary film that's on its way that'll help us replay this over and over again and learn. Can I say one thing really quick? Yes. Okay. What two? One, one thing that um that I think Arno saw in Haval that is so important and and different between Haval and Chris is that Haval was patriotic about America yes. where Chris was more nationalistic about it. And we oh. can get into that in the film, which I Thank think you. is important. And then another thing about Haval is it wasn't just Haval, like Haval didn't just help Chris. Chris helped Haval a lot too. Um, and I remember driving back from, you know, filming Haval meet Chris for the first time um, Haval had a lot of realizations and then he spent the next like 18 months talking about those. So can Haval just say one really quick thing about what he has learned from Chris? Please, Haval? I mean, you know, I learned from him that, you know, change is possible. And then, you know, a lot about hunting deers. So that's something that I learned and living in the wild in the countryside. So that's something I wasn't exposed to, but it just learned That's like you could be what I was looking for. I was looking for how you learned, like you said, like you by experiencing that rural poverty, you realize like, oh, you had never seen anything like that. And you realize like, oh, I understand, like they're like the forgotten America. And that just is so yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, that's just an important part, but I guess we'll leave it for people to watch in the film. So yeah. that's assignment. So. But that is that is the one of our lessons that we must learn um, is the humanity that exists, the real, genuine humanity that exists in all of our identities that don't normally get put together. So, Den, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for so having me. Pardon? Anything? Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for joining us on Sunday Forum at St. Luke's. Um, the great thing is you can play this over and over and over again and keep learning from it and going deep and going into these books that we've talked about. Um, also, um, I am going to continue all of these wonderfully redemptive and transformative conversations, but so glad you were with us today. Have a great week. Thank you. <laughs>